Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it's a privilege for me to welcome you to the inaugural lecture of this uh, year's Alpheus T. Mason Lectures in Constitutional Law and Political Thought. I'm Robert George, and I have the honor to be the director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions in the Department of Politics here at Princeton, and it's the Madison Program that is sponsoring this evening's event. This is the third year of our Alpheus T. Mason Lectures. And I take pleasure in saying that these lectures are made possible by the generosity of Mr. John P. Hansel, class of 46, a loyal Princetonian, and a faithful friend of the James Madison program. And we are very, very grateful to Mr. Hansel. Alpheus T. Mason was successor to Woodrow Wilson and Edward S. Corwin as McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence here at Princeton. Mr. Hansel and many other students were led by Professor Mason's teaching to a profound appreciation of the principles of constitutional government. As a tribute to Professor Mason and the students whom he molded, the Madison program strives through these lectures to bring great teachers of politics and law to speak at Princeton. Tonight's Mason lecturer, Professor Joseph H. H. Weiler, is both an extraordinary teacher and an eminent scholar of international and comparative constitutional law. He will be speaking to us on the theme of his new book, Governance Without Governments, The Legitimacy Crisis of International Law. This is, needless to say, a topic of particular significance at the current time. And no scholar in the world is more highly qualified to address it. Professor Weiler is university professor at New York University, where he is the Joseph Strauss Professor and the European Union Jean Monnet Chair at New York University School of Law. He also serves as chair and faculty director of the Hauser Global Law School program and the director of the Jean Monnet Center for International and Regional Economic Law and Justice. Professor Weiler has had a profound impact on the fields of European Union law and international trade law through his many publications, composed, by the way, in several languages, including Italian and German. His recent books include Integration in an Expanding European Union with I. Begg and J. Peterson, the EU, the WTO, and NAFTA, the Constitution of Europe, do the new clothes have an emperor, and other essays on European integration, and the European Court and the National Courts, Doctrine and Jurisprudence, which was co-edited with our own Anne-Marie Slaughter and with Alex Stone Sweet. It is with great admiration for his many, many accomplishments that I extend a very warm welcome to Professor Joseph H.H. H. Weiler and invite you now to join me. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Professor George, it's an honor and a privilege to be here. Uh, as one uh, grows old, one's own self-doubt deepens about what one has to say. The passage in Psalm 34, God, my tongue against evil and my lips from speaking deceitfully comes to my mind. So I make that prayer as I start on this difficult topic. Governance without government, the normative challenge to the global legal order. I would like to start with a statement of the relationship between international law and democracy. Democracy being one of the features which legitimate normativity, not 
the only features, but one of the central ones, in most of the 20th century. In other words, leading us to a period of not more than maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And when I look at this, this relationship between international law and democracy, I think it's worth dividing it into two. First, to look at the principal doctrines of international law. How do they relate to democracy? And then to look at the law-making process of international law. Not what comes out of it, which are the doctrines, but how actually international law is made, and ask how does that relate to democracy. And to anticipate my conclusion, I would say that throughout most of the 20th century, generally speaking, international law has displayed indifference, even hostility to the concept of democracy. Certainly its claims to and justification of obedience were not rooted in any notion of democratic legitimation. Here are some examples of this. You take the primordial, let's look first at the big doctrines and then at the process. You take the primordial norm of international law, pacta sunt servanda, we lawyers like Latin, it allows us to charge higher fees. Rules must be obeyed, or agreements must be obeyed. This Pacta Sunt Servanda has never depended for its validity on the internal democratic arrangements of its subjects, states. Democracy, or lack of it, is not among the vitiating or exculpating factors from an international legal obligation. Here's another example. In defining statehood, for the most part of the last century, it was the efficiency of government and its effective con control over national territories that were critical to the acceptance of new states into the family of nations and not the democratic internal processes of those states. You didn't ask if the government was democratic, you asked if the government was effective. And if it was effective and could guarantee or seem to guarantee international legal obligations, it was kosher. If we take the complex norms of state succession, very interesting. What happens when you have a new state? And the rules on state succession are such that with the emergence of new states, notably in the 50s and 60s with decolonization, the question was to what extent should the new states be bound by obligations undertaken by their predecessors. And there was a great debate and an argument that they should not be so bound. But the reason that they should not be so bound was not rooted in the notion those norms were accepted by a non-democratic government, a government that did not represent the people in what we call democracy, the reason that the argument was made they should not be bound by those rules is that the previous state simply was not an expression of the self that was bound by the rules. Many of these states which claim not to be bound by the rules were horrible dictatorships which would have nothing to do with democracy. In the central area of the use of force, until recently, in the intervention to vindicate democracy, 
to defend democracy, to protect democracy, was prohibited, was considered an interference in the internal affairs of a state. And not only an interference in the internal affairs of a state, but interventions to defend democracy were considered as a violation of one of the primordial charter provisions on self-determination. In fact, in relation to self-determination, we see the big contrast in 20th century international law between a democratic sensibility and international legal sensibility. From a political theory point of view, democracy in many respects is central to the very notion of self-determination. Because the self, if we ask how is the self to determine itself, we want to understand that in some respect that determination is reflective of the components that make up that self. From an international law point of view, the law of self-determination said, democracy is just one ideology among others. And to intervene to defend democracy, to intervene to protect democracy, to intervene to restore democracy, was a violation of the right of peoples to self-determine, including self-determination by rejecting democracy itself. Recent developments in the practice of recognition of new states has changed some of that. If we go to the 90s and the fall of the Soviet Empire, we see a practice which insisted on some thin form of democracy as a condition of recognitions of the new states. But you will note that there was a deep irony there, because the club that was insisting that the new states have some kind of democratic pattern to their emergence, that club included many states which would have nothing to do in their own internal regimes with democracy. So, I could give you other examples, but I try to address really some of the central disciplines of international law to demonstrate, as I said, that throughout most of the 20th century, the attitude was not only of indifference, but as in the case of self-determination, even a certain measure of hostility. What about law-making? Not the doctrines of international law, but actually how international law is made. Here as well, there is some confusion because the primordial norm of lawmaking tended to be consent. States could not be made to obey an international legal norm without their consent. And if one looks at the artifacts of international lawmaking, either through treaties or through customary law, one always sought that elusive consent to show that states were not bound by an international law to which they did not give their consent. And that raises, at some immediate level, you see, well, at least in that respect, there's some form of democracy, because in our notion of democracy, there's an embedded a notion of consent. But in fact, the consent that one found in international lawmaking has very little to do with the sister discipline of consent within our domestic political arrangements. Because, in fact, the consent of international law is the opposite of democracy. 
because democracy is not only premised on the existence of moral agents who give their consent to a policy that abides by a certain system of governance, but also by the notion that within a polity, the majority has the ability to bind the minority, even if on a specific measure the minority disagrees with the majority. And the consent in international law, in classical international law of the 20th century, negated that very premise. In fact, the consent, even if at time fictitious, was based on the notion that there was, it was a notion of sovereignty, of sovereign equality. And in a system of sovereign equality, no sovereign has the power to impose its will on another sovereign legally. So that even if the community of nations as a whole wanted one norm, they could not coerce a state which opposed it. And its consent was required. Something that when we start reflecting on it is quite distinct from our internal arrangement of a democratic polity. And international lawmaking abounded with devices for states who would oppose the creation of a norm to make that opposition effective through non-signature, reservation, persistent objector, the kind of arcana of international lawyers, but all part of that notion of consent as sovereignty rather than consent as part of a discourse of democracy. Now, if we have here then a story, and this is I'm nearing the end of the first act of my presentation, of a 20th century in which, in the discourse of international law, um, there is indifference or hostility, then at some level you have noticed that I've used a language that is emotionally loaded, hostility, indifference. And in some measure, it's meant to evoke a notion, well, there was something wrong if international law was hostile or indifferent to democracy. But one should not jump to that conclusion. Because if we think about the conditions of democracy, the hostility and indifference of international law are not only understandable, but in and of themselves they vindicate certain value premises of the international legal system. If we step back and think about democracy, the discourse of democracy makes sense, is part and parcel of a matrix which includes governance, which includes polity, and which includes demos. We require democracy, we insist on democracy, when we have polity, when that polity in some way reflects a demos. However the demos is defined, it doesn't, demos is not necessarily conflated with ethnos, etc. But a community which self-understands itself, which understands itself as constituting a demos, and which there is a system of governance. And in those conditions we say normative political theory, a vocabulary of values which would say governance should 
follow the practices, the habits of some democratic system. The indifference of international law to democracy emanates from the absence of those elements in the international legal system. The international legal system, through much of the 20th century, was understood and self-understood as not constituting a polity, of not having a demos, and even international legal normativity was not understood in the vocabulary of governance. It was understood in the vocabulary of initially coordination, states as sovereign coordinating their relationships with other states, and eventually some forms of regime, but not in the sense in which we understand governance in our domestic arrangement. So now, this is not just an empirical observation of how international law was self-understood, but that was normatively desired. In other words, the notion that the international legal system would be composed of states cooperating with each other, entering into binding legal commitments, but entering into binding legal commitments as independent sovereignty and not part of a polity, of not stipulating that their population constituted a demos, and above all not conceiving of international legal normativity as a system of governance, was normatively desired. And therefore, for international law to recognize to embrace the discourse of democracy would actually being, would constitute a transformation of the very self-understanding of international law, which was not only alien in, as I repeat, in a kind of empirical sense, people just didn't think about it in that way, but when people thought about it in that way, and one can be very sympathetic and empathetic to their conclusion, they didn't want the kind of transformation of the international legal system which embracing of a discourse of democracy would entail. So if one had initially some kind of perplexity or even normative worry, their international law could not have been such a great hue and cry if it throughout or most of the 20th century had this kind of hostility and indifference to more democracy, now one reads the very same narrative and says it's not only understandable in terms of how it understood itself, but it had some normative underpinning. Democracy comes with a baggage which states, which populations, which the international legal system did not want to carry. End of Act 1. So now we go to Act 2. And the thesis of Act 2 is double. And it's a bit complicated. It requires keeping more than one ball in the air at the same time. The first is to say that it is possible to read the very same history of international law in the 20th century as having throughout the period elements of governance, even though 
they were not often recognized as such. But more importantly, and this will be a central part of my argument, I will argue, for, I will argue that certain transformations took place in the international legal system, which today, willing or not, whatever our normative take on this is, we cannot eliminate the discourse, at least of governance, from a coherent understanding of what international law is and how it operates. And that, in turn, will raise the normative challenges which are addressed in the title to my speech. So let me explain, and at least for a few minutes I beg you to suspend your disbelief and be a little bit patient as I set the thing up, and then it will become clear. So the first element in understanding this transformation of the international legal system in the 20th century and this alternative perspective to looking at it involves what I call an understanding of the geology of international law in the 20th century. Now, I use geology not as a cutesy metaphor. It's actually an important methodological move. And I want to explain, and for this I have to go for a minute to the blackboard, so I will raise my voice so that everybody can hear. Let's look at one form of international lawmaking, treaties. A lot of international law is made through treaties. Let's take a photograph of international law, or if you want, a seismic record of international law around the year 1900, about 100 years ago. And if we look at the practice of treaties, we will see that most treaties are bilateral treaties. Most treaties are bilateral treaties. And we have a very small number of multilateral lawmaking treaties. Most treaties, two states get together and they conclude a treaty. If we now take a photograph, let's say, in around 1950, or another system reading, we will see that especially after the advent of the United Nations, we see two new types of treaty emerge. One is the multilateral legislative treaty. In other words, not two states concluding a bilateral treaty among themselves, but many states getting together and having a treaty like the Law of the Sea Convention, or the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties itself, how states should interact among themselves, and many others like that. And what's more, we also see an important stratum of constitutional treaties constitutional in the sense that they aspire to be universal, and constitutional in the sense that they proclaim higher norms of the international legal system, like the United Nations Charter. <coughs> or if you want a preliminary constitutional treaty, even if it was not thought quite in those terms, back in 1947, the GATT, which in some ways was a constitutional treaty in so much as economic relations and trade relations between states of and then if we look towards the end of the century, 1990-200, the last 2000, I beg your pardon, the last 10-15 years, we see the emergence of yet another form of treaty, which is the regulatory administrative treaty, of which we have very few in 
1900. And if we look at 1990, we see many of these. What characterizes the regulatory administrative treaty, among other things, for example, is its subject matter in the field of the environment, in the field of trade, in the field of commerce, where suddenly there is international normativity through treaty, which was not only previously dealt with by the state, but dealt with by the administrative agencies of the state. Now I want to explain what I mean by the geology of international law in the 20th century and why it's important. Because, 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 because the original tendency would be to say, okay, we have a history like the Stone Age and then the Bronze Age and then the Iron Age. The age of bilateral treaties and then the age of multilateral treaties and now we're in the age of regulatory administrative treaties. But that is not what one discovers when one looks deeper. Because when I look at 1900-2000, although I have administrative law treaties, although I have regulatory treaties, I still have a great many bilateral treaties, not different from the ones I found in 1900, 100 years before. And I have a great many of multilateral treaties, lawmaking treaties. So we can't speak of the bilateral age, the multilateral age, and then the regulatory age. Because I look at where we are now, and in this age, the seismic, the geology of international law says, I have elements that come from the entire century. And the international law of today is composed not of one stratum, but of three strata, regulatory, legislative, and constitutional, and bilateral. And an account I give of international law of today has to take into account all three strata. Now, why is this important for us? It's important for us for two reasons. The first one it's to re resist the temptation to say in 1900 there was one kind, one problem of legitimacy which resulted from a practice which was bilateral. And then mid-century there was a different legitimacy challenge that resulted from lawmaking and multilateral treaties. And now we are facing a normative challenge that is international law taking over functions of the regulatory state. The normative challenge that international law faces today has to relate to this more complex picture of these three strata coming together. And I want to suggest in what ways we see the normative challenge present itself in relation to these three strata. So let's first of all look at bilateral treaties. How can we even conceive of bilateral treaties as being a manifestation of governance. After all, bilateral treaties represent a contractarian notion. Two states coming together, they are equally sovereign, and they are just concluding a contract among themselves. How can that be a phenomenon of governance? It can, ladies and gentlemen. And it's a huge phenomenon of governance, and it creates very serious normative problems to 
our understanding of the international legal system. How so? The best way I can explain that is if we think of standard term contracts that we face in our domestic life. When you go in, you every time you update your operating system from Windows 2.3 to Windows 3.3 or from Office 97 to Office 2000, you click and it says scroll down and then it says click I accept. You've made a contract with Microsoft. Much of international bilateralism today is of that nature. In the early part of the century, the United States had a practice of so-called commerce, friendship, and navigation treaties. These were bilateral treaties. But in a way, what the United States did was Microsoft. Here's the treaty. You want it, you take it. Click, I accept. You don't want it. There will not be a commerce, friendship, and navigation treaty among us, between us, because it's bilateral. If you look at the international law of that period, although you have individual bilateral treaties, in effect, you have a general regime regulating relations among states based on that. It gets developed if we look at bilateral investment treaties. Bilateral investment treaties, hugely important in the globalized world. Hugely important, responsible in many ways for the flow of capital, for foreign investment. There is no multilateral trade regime. Each bilateral trade investment is exactly that, a bilateral uh, investment agreement. I beg your pardon. But if you look at the totality of them, they just copy each other. They are adopted by the United States, they are adopted by the European Union, we have a regime of bilateral investment agreements which inform our bilateral. In fact, that is the legal normativity that controls investment. If you opt out of it, you won't have much investment. Take free trade area agreements. There are hundreds of free trade area agreements. States are clamoring to have them. The European community has pioneered this. They have free trade area agreements with 60, 70 countries. The United States is expanding them. If you look at how these free trade area agreements are negotiated, at one level they are bilateral. The European Union has a free trade area agreement with Chile, with Mexico, separate agreements. In reality, it's a standard form contract. You either sign the dotted line or not. You negotiate on the margins. There is a regime of free trade area agreements which becomes part of the international normativity. Now, the normative problems with this are serious because our notion of consent and what's the problem if states agree to this is there. But on the other hand, we know that there are serious issues of legitimacy when we have bargaining of unequal power. When we have internal ratification processes among the partners 
which do not necessarily reflect a deliberative process within the polity. It's sufficient from an international point, law point of view. But since these type of bilateral agreements really reach deeply into social and economic life of nations, the notion is no problem of normativity, bilateral consent of states, voluntaristically agreed by two high contracting parties. In fact, we have a regime which gives where the consent in some uh, respects is as real as your consent when you click the I accept on your computer and the content of which is not a content which tries truly to find an, opti an optimal solution to reciprocal arrangement between states but is off the shelf meets everybody's need and in that respect can be highly problematic. More about that later. Let's take the multilateral treaties. What about them? Now, the multilateral treaties represent in some way a break with the contractarian model of bilateralism. It's the international community trying to assert itself as a community. In other words, as having interests which transcend the aggregate interests of the individual member states which come together in some of these treaties be it the very United Nations Treaty, be it any other kind of multilateral lawmaking treaty. But even these multilateral communitarian treaties are not devoid of serious problems of legitimacy. What defines international multilateralism? is the appropriation or definition of common assets. The common assets may be material, such as the deep bed of the high sea. So we make that a common asset of the international community, and we regulate it in some respect as a common asset. It can be territorial, the way international law deals with space, or with Antarctica. It can be functional, such as collective security. The whole way the Security Council is meant to manage security as a collective good, as a collective asset of the international community as a whole, not as a reflection of the security interests of this or that state. And it might even be spiritual. Human rights, which we all applaud, is a manifestation of this kind of appropriation of certain values and making them true a common asset. Explaining these common assets in contractarian re regime terms is at best unconvincing and maybe even silly. One has to stipulate a community which is composed of but whose objective and values may be distinct from the specific objective of any individual member state if we, are to if we are to explain some of these regimes, which I've just outlined. So it's easier to understand the constitutional and legislative forms of this multilateral treaty making as a form of governance 
After all, when we speak of governance, we do not refer only to the administrative phenomenon, but also to a legislative phenomenon. And the added value of speaking about it in these terms is that it highlights the way in which often this appropriation of common assets impacts on what were considered before domestic functions of government and of the legislature. So that when these things take place, it is not simply the international community in some cooperative method, multilateral method, reaching results which perhaps would not be achieved acting unilaterally, but these also have profound impact on domestic policy which now get negotiated at the multilateral level. And finally, we get to the last element, which is the administrative and, re and the regulatory. What's interesting about the administrative and the regulatory dimension of international lawmaking is the following fact. In terms of subject matter, they reach deep into the functions which were associated with administrative law in our domestic states, the regulatory state. That in and of itself need not be problematic to us. At many levels, worthwhile results can only be achieved when done at the international level. But what is also interesting in this area is that the way it is done privileges a type of process which makes many of these activities escape from the normal mechanisms of accountability and representation with which we are accustomed, not only domestically, but with which we are accustomed even at the international level. In a legislative treaty, a kind of Newtonian world, long, many years to negotiate, and then it goes for a process of ratification, and a Congress and a Parliament can ratify it. In the administrative level, it's much more Einsteinian, little things moving fast. The ability of the state and its agency, the ability of the normal instruments and processes of classical international law to control what is happening at the administrative level of the international normativity is not only problematic, but sometimes absent. So now let's draw some conclusions. And the conclusion is that when we look, based on this geology of international law, of which I gave you a snippet, we see that in large parts of the international legal scene, not only a coherent, but in some respects the only coherent way of describing and analyzing what is happening is in a process which we could rightly call governance. In other words, in the three different ways in which I explain, we have a process of governance in international law. In and of itself, it shouldn't alarm us but it creates the following normative dilemmas. When we have a process of governance, we expect 
at least in countries that used to be called part of Western liberal democracies, that governance should be partly legitimated through the main institutions of democracy, some forms of representation, some forms of accountability, facilitated or catalysts through transparency. The very vocabulary of democracy in our domestic arrangement depends on the existence of government when there is governance. We need, for example, or we speak, for example, or we theorize, for example, on separation of powers in one form or another, on checks and balances, on representation of through parties, through elections. In the administrative states, at least of some form of accountability. It can be direct accountability of the administrative process. It can be the accountability of throwing the scoundrels out after five years or four years or six years, depending on our domestic arrangements. The dilemma, the challenge of governance without government is the fact that our very notions of democracy have no purchase on this international process. If there is governance and there is no government, the habits, the institutions, the processes with which we are accustomed to think about democracy simply do not grasp, do not grip, do not apply, if you want, to the forms of international governance. We can add, picking up something I said before, in our domestic arrangements, whatever form of democratic government we adopt, we insist, and not only insist, it's considered primordial, it's considered a sine qua non, that there will be demos. The notion that the majority has the authority to bind a minority is dependent on majority and minority self-understanding themselves as being part of a demos, in which a majority can then bind a minority. In international life, we don't have a demos, not in any understandable form which we regard it in domestic arrangements, and normatively, most of us don't want an international demos of that character. We don't have polity in the same way. So now we draw a conclusion and we see a certain almost tragic dilemma that international legal life finds itself at the turn of this century. On the one hand, we applaud many of the achievements of international normativity. In some deep ways, the world is a better place because of the existence of these international regimes. At the same time, we come to recognize these international regimes as forming part of a reality which we describe as governance. And we require for governance, in terms of our political conviction, legitimation, at least partial legitimation, through the methods, practices, habits, sensibilities of democracy. 
And yet, in a situation of governance without government, democracy has no purchase. Democracy is not applicable in the normal ways we understand it. And therefore, we find ourselves in the horns of this kind of dilemma. Do we go with the result-oriented system, judging its acceptability in terms of likable results, but abandoning any notion of legitimation through process? Or do we insist on some kind of legitimation through process, the way we do in our domestic arrangement when we are faced with governance, and realize that either the system does not allow that, or that the price of achieving that is dismantling some of the achievements that international cooperation achieves. That is the challenge of normativity of international law at this moment. Thank you very much. Well, uh, we're going to open the floor for uh, questions and uh, discussion. Um, just, we'll go about uh, 20 minutes or so. So the floor is open. Yes, sir. Yes, hi. I'm originally from uh, Europe, and I was reading over the proposed European Constitution recently, which was largely the creation of uh, former French President Valéry Giscard d'Estaing. And I found uh, a tremendous difference between the proposed European Constitution and the American Constitution, uh, most notably in the area of rights, you know, the right to health care, the right to maternity leave, the rights for children to have their views taken into account. All those things are included in the European Constitution. What are your thoughts on it, and how far do you think European integration will ultimately be able to go? I suggest question for the, uh, tape. So just the, the question was that when one looks at the new proposed constitution for Europe in its charter of fundamental rights, one finds a much deeper concern with the social than one finds in classical bills of rights that one finds one sees, for example, in the United States, but also in other countries. And the question is to comment on the difference and on how far one can go. My advice is to read the small print in the Charter of Fundamental Rights because, and I mean this seriously, there are two things that are deceptive there. First of all, when you read one part of small print, it says all these rights are to be respected in accordance with part three of the treaty, which is where the meat is. And when you read part three of the treaty, you see that many of the rights which are written in such august language in the Charter itself are clawed away when you see actually what the treaty is doing. And this is very notable in the area of free movement and so forth. Secondly, when this Charter was negotiated, when this Charter was negotiated, there was a big debate about these rights, with the British, for example, being very skeptical. And not being skeptical behind the values which these rights were to represent, like the right to work and health and all the rest, but about the wisdom of enshrining such entitlements 
as a fundamental human right. In two respects, one of which I will say now and one of which I will mention in a minute. Now the compromise that was achieved, and again this requires reading the small print, is very often in the rights that you mentioned and may be applauded, the formula is used, there is a right to such and such a social benefit in accordance with the law of the member state, which has the dangerous effect of taking something that could be a right, and in some member states is a right, and actually deconstitutionalizing it. Because they say the right exists in the way it is practiced, in accordance with the law, and not giving it an autonomous statement as a higher law. So there's something deceptive. One has to be very careful in not being all that impressed by the rhetoric, although I will concede that things that maybe lawyers think that we have guarded against it by putting in these little clauses, etc., later take a life of their own. But here is where I see the big dilemma in relation to that kind of right. And I relate what you asked about the European Union to many of the international instruments for protection of fundamental rights in international law, because we have a variety of them, and many of them in their content go well beyond what you find of the Charter of the European Union. When you constitutionalize, constitutionalize these rights, and in many legal regimes when you internationalize them, it has the same effect as constitutionalizing them. You are taking them out of politics. You are taking them out of politics. Here is the question that Europe has to face in relation to these rights, and which only received muted attention in the Convention. The social rights which have been so-called constitutionalized, although I say read the small print carefully. If they come to be, if they are implemented, if the small print is brushed aside and courts brush aside small print, as you know. It means that these social choices have been taken out of politics. Now, in Europe of 1950, in Europe of 1960, in Europe of 1970s, there may have been a consensus around the main instrument of the post-war welfare state. And in many, in many respects, if you read the Charter, it has that kind of, the social dimensions of the Charter of Fundamental Human Rights. It looks like, let's try and preserve the post-Second World War achievements of the European welfare state. In today's Europe, in the Spain of Aznar, in the Italy of Berlusconi, in other countries, do we have the same kind of social consensus around that organization of society based on the premises of the post-World War welfare state? Now note, I'm not taking a position. I'm not saying that that is a bad thing, that there should be more privatization or there should be more self-reliance. I'm not engaging in that argument. I'm simply saying, can we find in European society that kind of consensus around these issues, or do we find, even in Britain's, in Blair's Britain, a very different debate 
calling into question many of what were considered the achievements of the post-war welfare state. If Europe is increasingly divided <coughs> on these issues in the sense that it's no longer part of a broad social consensus from center-left to center-right, but is now the le a legitimate, not taboo part of politics, then the question is, is it appropriate that that should be constitutionalized in a way that will take it out of political discourse, that will take it out of electoral politics, that will remove from Europe something which is now remarkable, that we have some countries going in one direction and experimenting in one direction in terms of the arrangement of social entitlement, etc., and others going in another direction, preparing the status quo, and the whole of Europe is experimenting and charting its way. If the effect of the charter will be to end that political debate, to end those issues from being part of electoral politics, and to end the experimentation which one is finding across of Europe, I'm not at all sure that this should be considered as a major achievement. Yes, Professor Marachi. Um, very, it was very elegant talk, and I, from 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 your starting point, um, I also got to your ending point. But as a political scientist, I, I then started from another point, and I asked myself, what do I see in the real world today that would convince me that this legitimacy crisis really exists? And it. It seemed to me that if it really existed, we should see myriad decisions being taken where people seek a means of electoral or, or discourse level participation but can't find it. But when I look around me in the major areas which you mentioned, you see extraordinary levels of political participation and extraordinary costs being imposed on politicians. I mean, the Iraq war, Governments will rise and fall. Parties may be destroyed on that issue. NAFTA or the Doha Round, uh, the Kyoto Protocol. I mean, each of these are things that are deeply debated in domestic politics. So the question from the point of view of a political scientist is, how would we know and, and, and what convinces you um, that we're into that dangerous area where we're we're getting less political contestation and debate than we should have. It's hard to set a yardstick, but this is not a cop-out. Because one part of my answer to what you said is, one should not fall into the American perspective trap. What do I mean by the American perspective trap? It might be that in the United States, in relation to some of the issues you mentioned, or in relation to, much less so, because Iraq is probably more exceptional, more the exception than the rule, a country like Britain. But let's stick to the United States, that Kyoto, that NAFTA, uh, even the WTO itself is a subject of political contestation, that political costs are involved, that elections can turn about. But how true is that for the rest of the world? 
part of the argument I made is that to look at international law as governance, privileges, and that's why it's so important even today to speak about bilateralism, privileges certain actors and underprivileges others. Take the WTO. The United States gets to negotiate. The United States, the European Union, a little bit Japan, maybe in future negotiations China, they get to negotiate the two pillars of the WTO system, both the horizontal regimes, the rules that apply to everybody, and the actual terms of trade that will prevail in the world. But of the 146 countries, there will be 120 which have very little say. They have very little say even on trade terms because what the European Union and the United States and the big actors negotiated, they have no bargaining leverage and they just have to take the pack on the take it or leave it. And on the horizontal regimes, they have to take it, take it or leave it. So if you set up for me and say, but look in the United States, NAFTA is contested, the WTO is contested, Kyoto is contested, and that becomes the evidence of meaningful political contestation, I would just say, let's look at all other partners and see to what extent we have a replication of this. And in most countries, we will have no replication at all. We will have countries just signing the dotted line. Not because necessarily of apathy, etc., but because there's no realistic option in the system of governance that I described. That's the first part of my answer. The second part of my answer is that there's an awful lot that goes on which is not contested in the way you described. Because usually in what you described, there was always something that suddenly threw it to the public eye. I'll give an example from Europe. There was an awful lot of public debate about mad cow disease. And politicians and ministers had to resign, etc. But there's an equal amount of risk allocation in the regulatory regime in Europe which never surfaces to the public eye. Now one can say, so what? But the so what can be, well, if it doesn't come to the public eye, who cares about it? As long as the outcome is acceptable, that's how we do good government. But it could also be a reflection of a certain corruption of the political process. It's hard to choose between these two options. You know, the fact that this is how it's done, and if there's no contestation, that's the sign that no contestation is necessary, and when there is a need for contestation, it's possible. Look at mad cow disease. It, you can play it both ways. You can say it proves that there is a possibility of contestation when you want it. You can also say that in not the exceptional case, but in the quotidian, in the normal case, in the rule rather than the exception, it's all below the radar. Too much governance goes on without the ability, without the means, without the sensitivity to have contestation. And in areas when we do have them within domestic politics, they are contested or they are debated or they are deliberated in a different way. And for me, that would be for you, a political scientist, a yardstick. 
If I look at the regulatory regime of the United States, and I say that across the board there is the ability of stakeholders to make their voice known, to present their point of view, to challenge the process, and even later to dispute that. And then I take similar areas, and I see that in identical areas of regulation, stakeholders are shut out, I would say that is a cause for concern for me. Something has been lost in terms of the process. And the fact that the outcome is acceptable, well, acceptable to who? Who are the gainers? Who are the losers? Etc. Very often the international scheme changes the gainers and the losers because of different voices to stakeholders. So that is a second hard criterion for saying that there should be a level of concern. Uh, yes, Professor James. I had the impression that uh, part of your uh, diagnosis of a legitimacy crisis in the international regime um, depended on a view of domestic politics which had an element of idealization in it, of the relationship between the demos and the policy. Um, and it seems to me that there are often problems in that relationship in the 20th century, and it's actually those problems that are interior to regimes that produce the outcomes that you so eloquently produced on the board. Uh, if you take, for instance, the story that ends in the WTO and that goes through the gap, it begins really in the 1930s with the realization in the US Congress that too much domestic debate is dysfunctional. And so by the Reciprocal Trade Authority Act, uh, the Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act, you give the authority from the contested sphere to the uncontested sphere of executive action. I mean, it is contestable in theory every four years, but it removes it directly from a realm of domestic discussion. And so much of this story, it seems to me, is actually driven in that way um, as an outcome of domestic discussions and domestic debates where people want to say there are some kinds of debates um, that are not all that healthy if they go on, if they go on too long may be dysfunctional, and that's why we want to do this in a, in a different manner. So there's a different process that they want to apply, and that they, they then put that onto the international I, One could go even further. Indeed, one should not idealize the democratic arrangements within our polities. One should not, in all respects, idealize democracy. If I had more time and I spoke, spoke about another uh, dimension of international law of democracies, how international law treats the dem democraticity of states, we know the phenomenon of illegal, illiberal democracies. After all, democracies are good or bad as the people who make them, and a democracy of evil people will produce evil results. And one should be attendant to those kinds of issues. And very often interna internationalization can as you suggest in your question, deflect the brunt of some of the pathologies of democracy. The United States probably could not have a complex trade agreement if it was left to the normal democratic processes, and that's why one has fast track, that at the end of the day, Congress either has to approve it or reject it, but we don't open it up. And sometimes we say it even improves the quality of democracy because one doesn't see the pathologies of pork and, and other such f 
phenomenon. So, how does, what conclusion does one draw with this? The first conclusion is indeed that when, when one looks at this map, one should be careful. And there's been quite a bit of empirical work in some areas, in the regulatory area itself, where it is dem demonstrated that internationalization insulates special, certain special interests and that you have a better outcome in terms of the goals of the very policy if you do it at the international level rather than at the national level. But even having said that, the phenomenon that I describe is so vast that the fact that in certain areas the internationalization of the process can improve or tend to some of the pathologies of democracies which we find domestically will not and cannot make the, pro the problem go away. And very often the remedy, although it's better than the illness itself in terms of efficiency, one has the result, is no less problematic from other dimensions. You take it internationally, and suddenly you see a very different set of players which are benefiting. So although you have the international norm, the content of that norm is written in such a way that would have distorted the outcome if it was negotiated domestically. And that should be problematic to us. Because that means we have bought the efficiency of the international norm at the expense of what we would consider a fair or democratic outcome in our domestic scene. When that happens, that should be of concern for us. And I would suggest that that can happen not in a few cases, but in very many cases. And the other thing where perhaps there's a difference in nuance between you and I, you glossed over it quickly. You said, well, it's true that every four years there is some kind of accountability because the legitimacy of the whole government, of the whole regime, of the whole administration comes up. It's not just that it's come, it comes up. One is working under that kind of discipline as the administration manages its affairs. So even when they do things in this kind of fast track, they are aware of that kind of discipline which is imposed by periodical accountability. That is removed at the international level. And I don't consider that as a small item. The fact that these international regimes are not subject to that kind of cyclical accountability which we find in our domestic arrangements. So it's not just a matter of principle that we do not like even if the outcome is efficient. We do not want to do altogether a way of legitimation of process. I find it as problematic in terms of the discipline of what gets practiced when you don't have that kind of accountability. As I mentioned before in replying to Andy, different stakeholders get privileged, different voices get heard, different voices get shut out, different countries' constituencies are catered to by the international process. That should be of concern to us. So I don't minimize the question, but I say that very often the remedy although useful in terms of getting things done, in terms of governance, raises its own set of very serious normative challenges. Uh, yes, you said. Uh, 
Thanks very much, Professor. A question um, based on my experience with the periphery of Europe, in this case Greece, where the Greek domestic democratic process at certain periods seemed to be failing to generate the kind of legitimacy that would achieve the goals that the Greek people thought they were pursuing. Whereas the idea of Europe managed to create or at least create the image of a kind of legitimacy which had a very powerful, useful effect on the political process. You see this spreading in a way now through the enlargement countries, even if in the center of Europe you, that legitimacy may no longer have the, the effect it did. Can we talk about a positive you know, source of alternative legitimacy? Um, I, I see that in many parts of the world, sort of this tribal version of legitimacy is all we've got, and I kind of look toward these transnational, you know, international governance norms as a source, at least in the interim, for the, for the time being. Thank you. And it's uh, <clears throat> what you described about Greece is also true to some extent about Italy. It's I, I recall that as a thesis which I first read advanced by Lucas Tsukalis, that the way of Italy towards modernity, that the way of Greece towards modernity, maybe even more Italy than Greece, was through Europe. That certain reforms could only be achieved because that is what Europe wanted, that is what Europe required and that if any domestic force came forward, it would probably be being bogged down in Italian politics and not have had quite the same legitimacy. And you say another thing that is very important, that we should not equate the discourse of legitimacy with democracy. Legitimacy has many, com many components which are not conflatable or fully consonant with democracy. The previous question, I mean, efficiency is also part of legitimacy. A democracy which simply cannot deliver the results, it's a truism, it's a banality, but it remains true, even if banal, that there are other factors which go into the legitimacy of governance which are not only democracy. So when you say, at least as an interim, and we just observe that's how it was, and in some respects it was useful, and the politics, the polities can look back the concern I have is when that becomes the habit. And when one talks, if you direct our attention to Europe, one of the problems I see with the problem of democracy in Europe, but I think it's also, in some respect, can be extrapolated elsewhere, it's the very success of Europe. If we accept at least part of my thesis that the process of governance, for example, in a polity like Europe, compromises what we would normally understand as essential elements of democratic governance, and not everybody agrees with me. Uh, Andy and I have a long-standing, at least four or five years, discussion on at least the nuances of this. But if one buys in at least to part of my thesis, one of the most serious problems of Europe is its very success because it represents, to use hard words, I don't think I would use them in writing, a corruption of civic sensibilities. Because if you get the polity habituated that on the one hand the normal habits that we associate 
with legitimate democratic governance are being compromised at the level of European Union. We can't throw the scoundrels out. There's no day in the life of the European Union where you, it's similar to that day in the life of the member states of the European Union when you're so sick and tired of what's going on you just throw the government of the European Union out because the way European Union governance is structured is there's no government to throw out in quite the same way. And I can give many other examples. But if the thing works and delivers the results and is successful as it has been to a large extent, it has a certain corrupting effect on public sensibilities because then people get used to the idea that, well, you know, there's bread, there's circus, and we enjoy it. So it legitimates the very process of not respecting some of the elements which we think are important normatively as part of our system of values because it works, because it is successful. So that would be my footnote to your question. Even if I agree with the thesis that part of the modernization of countries like Greece, of countries like Italy, were achieved through European Union membership at a period which were far less, if you want, democratic processes than they are today, I would be concerned if that became the regular order du jour. Well, that's how it works. Let's continue doing it because it works. Legitimacy of result can only take us so far. There should be some legitimacy of process associated with it. Well, we've been working Professor Weiler very hard, but let's take just one more question before we break. Professor Kirk? Um, in recent years, particularly in their uh, extrajudicial speeches, uh, the justices of the U.S. Supreme Court have become very intrigued with the task of integrating U.S. law um, uh, into either, depending on who you listen to, the constitution of other nations or the international system. Uh, and I was wondering what you think of this as uh, a future for U.S. jurisprudence uh, first um, as a goal, uh, and <clears throat> second, um, it seems to me that a lot of academics uh, in a lot of international law school programs are very much intrigued by this and often in favor of uh, having the judges talk to each other, court-to-court -court dialogue, with the aim of integrating uh, U.S. jurisprudence with the jurisprudence of other countries. So I wondered if you could comment, A, on what the court uh, is, is doing, if you agree with that characterization, and B, what you think of uh, the scholarly community's uh, role uh, in encouraging uh, that, and how responsible uh, they've been in discussing it. I have a whole range of conflicts of interest here. I have to, <laughs> I have to negotiate very carefully. Let this we start a little distance from that. Going back to the very first question about the Charter of Rights in Europe, etc. And the, the, the very trite comment should be made that even those who are very enthusiastic about the Charter, and you've guessed that I'm not very enthusiastic about it, but one thing they forget is the huge empowerment of the judicial power it will bring in Europe. Something that cannot, is not a, some people might celebrate it, some people might be worried about it, but at least I think most people would agree that it is consequential. 
So now how does this relate to your question? My departure point is that I am part of the crowd, I suppose this has become a la mode. It's not that is part that is a bit skeptical about judicial power, that is worried in some respects about mechanisms and institutions which will enhance even further the judicial power, and this is true in Europe. I have very little to say about the United States because uh, much else, others are better qualified for me to say that. So with that caveat, that I'm not one who celebrates uh, judicial power but treats it as important but also with necessary caution, I do think that the world is a better place. I think American jurisprudence is better through the kind of awareness that comes by looking at the jurisprudence of other countries. Take a hot subject, Joe, in this country. Separation of church and state. It's just considered axiomatic in the United States that not just as a matter of interpreting the United States Constitution, that in good liberal democracies there should be a very strong separation of church and state. You look at the constitutional architecture of Europe on this subject. So in all constitutions of Europe, you find more or less the principle of freedom of religion and freedom from religion. We can call that the agnostic state. But in the constitutional architecture of European of Europe, the agnostic state, freedom of religion, freedom from religion, does not translate itself into the secular state. So in some constitutional constitutional arrangements in Europe, like France, secularity is written into the constitution. Article one of the French constitution defines the French state as secular. That's fine. It's the constitutional choice of France. But if you look at countries like Germany, at a country like Britain, where there's an established religion, at a country like Belgium, you will find that they are all part of the same constitutional architecture, that they are all committed in their constitutional asset to the notion of freedom of religion and freedom from religion. But in a country like Belgium, religious schools can get support from the state on an equal footing with secular schools, as long as it's non-discriminatory, as long as it's impartial. So the state doesn't, in the understanding of the Belgium, does not understand its agnostic status by helping equally and not, separ and not separating, not being secular. And the panorama of European experiences in that touchy issue of church and state is interesting, not because I necessarily say that the Belgian model is better than the French model, but that both these models are accepted within the overarching European constitutional norm guaranteed by the European Convention on Human Rights of guaranteeing freedom of religion and freedom from religion. Now, does that mean that such solutions are useful or better for the United States? I'm not saying that even for one second. I have no idea. But would it be useful for constitutional discourse in the United States for justices of the United States Supreme Court when they deliberate these issues to be aware of such experiments, to be aware that in other countries which are equally committed to freedom of religion and freedom from religion, 
Nobody sees anything untoward in having the agnostic state supporting on an equal footing different religious denominations and secular schools. I think it would be a better kind of jurisprudence if it at least was cognizant of that, especially of countries which at a deep level are part of the same Western liberal tradition as the United States. And it's also true for European countries. It's important for European courts and for the European Court of Justice and for the European Court of Human Rights when it comes to freedom of expression, when it comes to other rights which are guaranteed in a different way in the American constitutional tradition than in Europe, to be aware of that kind of jurisprudence and to make it part of their discourse. Of that, I am con convinced, because all my life I've been a student of comparative constitutional law, and in some way of comparative law. And the funny thing is that people grow up with a Shainu syndrome, somehow with the belief that the way we do it is, at the end of the day, the best way to do it. That might be. In some deep sense, it has to be. That's why we're doing it. But to decide of the way we want to do it, I think it's useful to see that others who do not differ in a fundamental sense from the set of values which we think we believe in are doing it in a different way. And the skies are not falling down and the earth is not breaking up. So in retrospect, I think the enterprise of courts looking at what each others do, at least in the courts in countries which belong to the same Western liberal tradition. Much of the work of the Dean of the Woodrow Wilson School in this university has been dedicated to exploring these kind of cross-fertilization, I think uh, Professor Spolter calls it, I think is wholly laudable in this sense that I was explaining. And I practice what I preach, at least to some I try to. So just two months ago I brought together in a beautiful villa in Florence, five justices of the Supreme Court and 20 judges of constitutional courts of Europe to discuss the European Constitution. And one of the interesting parts of that meeting was the kind of questions that the American judges asked sometimes were questions that had the Europeans scratching their head. And that process of scratching that head, I think, was all too in every respect laudable, even if the result was to confirm that, well, this is the way we do it, but we can give a better account to ourselves of why we do it this way, having heard that they do it in a different way. So I must say that's where I come out. And I will remind you, in the interest of disclosure, that's what I make a living out of. <laughs>